friends. Welcome to Womankind. This is your host, Kelsey Novitz, and I'm here in episode 60 with my guest, Rachel Morlock, who is a freelance writer. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So tell us, my listeners and I, a little bit more about what you do as a freelance writer. Uh, I work mostly with a company, a local company here in Buffalo, uh, that makes uh, educational materials for children. Uh, so I work on writing children's books. I also do copy editing, where I'm fact-checking and going through manuscripts for grammar and style. Uh, so that's the bulk of what I do as a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. Can you say the name of that company? Is that allowed? It's Rosen Public. Oh, you work for Rosen, too. Okay, yes. I didn't know that. Um, so how long have you been doing that for? Uh, it's been a little over two years. Okay. Have you always been a freelance writer? How did you get into writing at all initially? I've always loved reading and writing in general uh, and I so I I didn't do any writing work before working starting this freelance work um, but my sister actually works for <laughs> Rosen Publishing and she was my little introduction to the company mm-hmm. and since then I've taken off and worked in numerous imprints within the company. Nice. And so if you want to get to know Rachel's sister, you can go back, I think, to episode, I want to say like eight or nine, very early on. Teresa Morlock is Rachel's sister, so previous womankind guest. Yes. (laughs) And so through that experience of being a freelance writer for Rosen, um, do you got any fun stories for us about freelance writing? (laughs) Um, What I really like about being a writer, uh, and specifically within... Um, this sphere of educational materials is that I get to delve into all sorts of different topics. So mm-hmm. science topics or social studies um, and just do a lot of research, which I mm-hmm. love as a super nerd. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I think I've written over a hundred books so far. Oh my god, over a hundred uh, books? Of varying lengths. <laughs> That's <laughs> so amazing. Some are pretty short and but they're all for um, different age groups, so that's I've been learning a lot as I go about how to um, write for the proper audience in terms of um, the age group, and then yeah, just I feel like it's a it's a big responsibility in a lot of ways. Even though I know um, it's a, I I like to think that some of my books will be introducing a subject to kids for the first time, so I feel like. That's kind of an honor mm-hmm. to to be the person to provide that information. Mm-hmm. And it better be interesting because yes. they could yeah. make or break their further <laughs> interest yeah, in that topic. Yeah, and decide what, mm-hmm. what they'd like to, what they get curious about, mm-hmm. what they'd like to pursue. So, for, so I don't know why I have like this particular topic jumping into my head, but I'm picturing like a kid who's really into like whales mm-hmm. and then they're like, where can I learn more about whales? And then you have written a nonfiction. I'm guessing most of your books are nonfiction. Yes. Yes. Um, then they're like, okay, here's this nonfiction book about whales, lots of illustrations, lots of fun facts. And then that really sparks the interest from there on out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for when I write. Nice. I don't know why, I don't know why the whale topic is the one that's <laughs> coming to mind, but that's just like what I picture. Uh, what has been your favorite thing to write about? I, I got to write a biography of Mary Cassatt, who's oh. an um, American artist who was part of the French Impressionist group. Mm-hmm. And so that book was geared toward 
seventh through tenth graders, so I got to get it was longer. I got to get more in depth about her life and uh, and her art, and that was really wonderful. The research aspect was really involved, and uh, like I was reading her letters, and um, I just felt like I I got to know her along the way. So that was really fun. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. <laughs> so has writing because I feel like biographies and books about women. I feel like they've changed a lot even recently in how we talk about women and how we talk about their stories in history. So have you experienced like any other way of writing or has it always been the way that you're doing it? Mm. That's kind of an odd question. Yeah, no, that's an Does that make sense? Question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think for one thing, just the fact that women are the subject of, of more biographies is an important mm -hmm. movement. Um, I, I was just reading that, um, I can't remember the number, but a really small percentage of art books are about female artists. Mm -hmm. And so just to, in the case of this Mary Cassatt book, just to add one more, mm -hmm. I think is, is, feels like a worthwhile pursuit. Right, putting something into the conversation. So mm -hmm. I, I just remember like in elementary school doing projects where you had to pick a biography about something or, so, or about someone in particular. And I, I feel like I always did choose women, but I feel like the the choices were limited. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. This is, you know, when I was 10, I don't know that I have a great memory of, like, the time. But I do remember doing a report on, I had to dress up as Clara Barton at Ooh. one point. <laughs> I did some, in high school, I did a project on Katherine Hepburn, too. So I, I've, I feel like I always gravitated towards women in those oh, scenarios. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think um, it also, probably who is telling the story changes how how a person, a bi biography is portrayed, too. So, um, I was just reading about Jane Austen. It was her birthday. Yeah, it was yes, yeah. yesterday or a couple days ago. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the first biographical sketches of her was by her nephew, who kind of painted this picture of her as the ideal woman and that's really colored our perception of her for right. centuries so but yes. who knows if that perception is true exactly yeah so yeah so just being sensitive to those mm -hmm. um perspectives is probably important too when looking at biographies mm -hmm. definitely yeah we got to consider who's who's controlling the story who's in charge of the story very cool I don't know how, what else to ask about freelance writing. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there anything that I missed or any other aspect that I... Uh, well, freelance in general is a pretty great gig because mm -hmm. I get to make up my own schedule mm -hmm. and I have a lot of flexibility and um, it also puts some pressure on me to be self-disciplined and mm -hmm. organized. All right, let's <laughs> talk about that because I have very little self-discipline and I always... How do you spend a day like an average day an average work day what does that look like for you because I know what mine would look like it would look like a lot of Netflix and <laughs> having a lot of trouble getting down to business <laughs> that is a concern sometimes you get distracted okay so that does happen okay yeah. I feel better now <laughs> um I I know a lot of people do have strict routines that they stick to or schedules that they impose for themselves, which I don't do and maybe I should do <laughs> in order to be more organized. But um, in general, I just, um, 
organize my work around deadlines and <laughs> sometimes meet them and sometimes don't. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I do tend to get into um, kind of really concentrated writing spells where I just want to keep going and so I tend to just let that take over and that's nice to have the freedom to kind of go with the flow at times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because yeah, writing I think isn't really like other professions. Sometimes you have to do, sometimes you just have to do it, but sometimes you have to do it when the mood strikes, whereas if mm-hmm. you're in a different field that might not be the case. Like you're not looking for creativity, there's just like this work has to get done. Yeah. And where that, to a certain extent, you do experience that, but there's, you know, creativity involved and brain power in a very specific way involved. Yeah, I've read a lot of different um, takes on that, about if it is just being really disciplined and making yourself work through it, or um, or if you do need to wait for the muse <laughs> to inspire right. you. I think in my, I don't have that excuse as much in my work <laughs> because it is all, mostly nonfiction. nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not... Because I'm writing for young audiences, there's not a ton of craft in terms of language. Right. I'm pretty limited in, in vocabulary I can use and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it is kind of a very specific thing, which maybe I don't have as much leeway as I take mm-hmm. in terms of... Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, you have no excuses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm painting a kind of... <laughs> uh, maybe a not-so-flattering image of myself as a writer. But, no, I think but, it's a very human picture <laughs> because, I don't know, For I, I feel... I, I've talked about this before, that, like, you know, because there are certain aspects of my job that I need self-motivation to do and have to mm-hmm. structure time myself. I do really well with, you know, the time limits that are imposed on me, but when it's a time limit I have to impose on myself... I don't really do well with that, but I have the impression that everyone around me does really well with that, and so I'm like, I'm the only one who can't get it together. I don't think so. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's just a human trait. Mm -hmm. I heard someone say the other day that time management, they used to think that time management was their superpower, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was thinking, I was really envious because time management is definitely not my superpower, but... um, I was trying to come up with what mine would be, and I think it would be stamina, or nice. at least like mental stamina, because I do have um, like task commitment, and when I get involved in something, then I just want to make sure my I do a really thorough job, and um, yeah, and I get really interested in in subjects and want to explore them from multiple angles. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I guess that would be my superpower. <laughs> That's a good superpower. I like that. I don't know what mine would be. I mean, in that situation, I think mine is the ability to think quick under pressure, which maybe I've honed that skill a bit too much by putting myself under pressure. Oh, <laughs> oh it's good to be adaptable. Though. Yes. Yeah. Adaptable. That's a better way of putting it. See, you're the writer. That oh. adaptability. That might be my superpower. Um, so... I did, you were a librarian at some point, I, right? I, wasn't, I worked in Oh, you worked in a yes, library. I was a librarian, okay. But Tell me more about that. I've always oh. I find that so interesting. Yeah. Well, I think libraries are truly magical places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a, probably most of my early childhood memories are from going to the library mm-hmm. and interacting with the librarians there and um, 
finding new books and exploring the shelves and um, going to library programs. So just personally, I, libraries are really important to me. And <laughs> what I found in working in libraries, I worked, I worked at the Rochester Public Library and then in the East Aurora Public mm -hmm. Library also. Um, and what I found was that I'm not alone. A, a lot of people feel that way. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, libraries are really important places in terms of social infrastructure, too, for providing a place where people can get together and form community and, uh, yeah, and in addition to reading. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't really realize that until, I guess, pretty recently. Um, this past summer, I was attending cooking classes at the Grand Island Library. Ooh. There's just there are lots of opportunities and they're free. <laughs> so mm -hmm. why not take advantage? I mean, I'm a frequenter of um, renting books on my Kindle for yes. free. And I always loved as a kid going and picking out new books and then picking out all the movies and bringing all the VHS tapes home. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot. I have good memories of that too from when <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> I remember going to the Buffalo Public Library. So I grew up in East Aurora and uh, my sister and a couple of our friends took the bus downtown to the Buffalo Library and filled up bags and bags and bags of books and then took them home again on the bus and on the bus we were like showing each other what we got and I think that's really it was it was like a pilgrimage to go <laughs> yeah. to the library so yeah it's a special place nice wait like a, a like public transit or like a, yeah. a bus that's going oh, no. specifically oh, to no, the like library the oh okay city bus. <laughs> oh, yeah yeah because that's a little bit of a trek from east aurora not too well, bad only but... if you don't have a car right yeah right yeah yeah that would make a difference for sure um so I want to get into this other aspect of your life, but I don't have a good segue. <laughs> um, so you are a single woman. I am. And we haven't talked a lot. We're, we're going to talk about, this is like the juicy gossip part of the episode, like relationships. <laughs> um, so tell my listeners what it's like to be a single woman. And you can say your age if you'd like, mm -hmm. um, but just some of the experiences that you've had. Yeah, well, so I'm a 33-year-old single woman, and um, a proudly single, I should mm -hmm. say, too, although not militantly, which <laughs> is an important <laughs> distinction. Um, like, I'm not anti-marriage. I, I have a lot of friends who are in beautiful marriage and relationships, so um, it's not, a, like, a philosophical <laughs> right. objection to marriage or, or relationships. Um, but... Even though I, I feel like a bit of a rarity among my friends and, and family members, uh, I'm not. Actually, so uh, what I've heard is that single women for the first time in history outnumber married women. I read this too. Yes. 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 So, yeah, it's kind of an important moment mm -hmm. in history where women are, even if they're not remaining single for their lives, they're marrying later. Um, so from 1890 to 1990, the median age of marriage was 20, 20 or 21, I think. From 1890 to 1990. Yes. And so who knows what it was before then, but probably... Wild. Probably younger, Oh right? yeah, definitely yeah. younger. That's <laughs> yeah. wild. Um, then in 1990, it bumped up a little, I think, to 23 or mm -hmm. maybe 24. And now we're at 27. Mm -hmm. So a lot of women are 
taking more time to either establish their careers or pursue education or um, just experience life on their own before getting married. Mm-hmm. So that's so cool. And there, I mean, I don't know. So have you read um, All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Tracer? Okay, I love that book. That's where those stats are. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Numbers don't stick in my head like that. (laughs) But I I read that too. And I I mean, you know, there have always been single women. And I especially Mm -hmm. loved the part where she talked about, like, single women, like, flocking to cities at, like, certain parts in history, like, kind of after the Industrial Revolution. Um, But I think that sometimes we get this, like, societal picture painted that, like, everybody was married and everyone like like women had to depend on men Mm -hmm. um but we just didn't necessarily hear the stories of the women who were like single mothers or like working in cities like as single women like I I don't know so I, I think that's just something that's kind of always occurred but we just didn't hear the stories we just heard about the women who had to depend on men for livelihood basically yeah or, th- or the women who didn't were kind of standouts also. Mm-hmm. Like, we have Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. um, a whole host of women writers who chose not to marry. Um, or, yeah, so I think women, these women were kind of visible, but um, but they were anomalies. Right. So, and it's because of economic pressures and... Right. Um, other pressures, social pressures, mm-hmm. that made it really difficult for women not to marry. Right. And so, yeah, as those things have been changing, mm-hmm. it's more of a, it's more common to be a single woman. Right, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot on the show, but the, like, one of the stats that blows my mind is that, like, women couldn't have credit cards that were not co-signed by a husband until, like, the 70s? Oh, like, <laughs> that's not that long ago. No. And... You know, like, and with that comes so many things, like renting an apartment, owning a house, like being able to be financially independent. Like, if you couldn't do those things, then how could you live? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I just, I don't know, it's crazy. Like, that now we just have so much more freedom to be independent. Mm-hmm. And it's a great time to be alive. It certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason. Sometimes it's not. (laughs) But for that reason, it is. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that statistic stayed so consistent for a hundred years. That's wild. And I read that book, but apparently that didn't stick with me (laughs) that part until now, just hearing it phrased in that way. Um, So, so it's, you said not like a militant decision. It's not like, I'm never going to be in a relationship. Right. Um, Have you been in a relationship before? I've been, I've done some sporadic mm-hmm. dating, I would say, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but nothing, I haven't been in any, what I would consider to be, like, meaningful relationships. I, you know, um, what Rebecca Traster says in her, in that book, All the Single Ladies, is that uh, this kind, this group of single women can be defined as uh, women who, um, who, they might not be opposed to marriage, but they haven't met a partner or been in a relationship where marriage would improve their life, like mm-hmm. offer them a richer, fuller life than the one they have as mm-hmm. a single woman. And so, yeah, so I feel like I'm in that camp. Right, <laughs> right. That, it, that just hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, 
no, that's bad questions. <laughs> um, do you receive judgment or confusion or like misunderstanding from people, people close to you or people like strangers? Uh, I'm really lucky that among my family and friends, I've always felt really accepted for my identity and my choices. And um, so not within those, those intimate circles. Um, I do find that strangers are very free about telling you what they, what they think they should do with you, you should do with your life. Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did have one kind of, um, one experience that kind of shook me up a little bit, which was uh, when I, so maybe this is a bit of a long story, but. We have all day. <laughs> um, let's see. So. I was kind of at this juncture in my life where I was moving from Rochester to Buffalo. My roommates who I'd lived with in Rochester, we lived together for about five years, I think, in Rochester. And they were moving to New Hampshire. They're a married couple. And uh, so they were leaving. I was kind of not really happy with work and wanting to pursue other things. So I decided it was a good time to just kind of change things up. and. Mm -hmm moved to Buffalo, but before that I wanted to uh, take the opportunity to do a little traveling. And so I set up uh, some time in Ireland with a program called Work Away, which mm -hmm. is kind of like a work exchange, like woofing. Oh, okay. Or, you know, yeah. This, yeah. yeah. So basically in exchange for a little work every day, you get room and board in all sorts of different environments. So. Uh, this was a, I'd set up to go work in a bed and breakfast in Ireland, and I thought I had, you know, everything I needed uh, to do this. I flew to Ireland and got to the customs officer, and um, she was highly critical of this this plan. The customs uh, officer? Yes, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's her job to make sure... To keep Ireland safe, right? But, uh, so she proceeded to ask from me a single lot of women, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind of the things that she mainly objected to were that I was a single woman, and that I was thirty-one, mm -hmm. um, that I I was kind of in between jobs. So basically, I answered all her questions about what I was doing, um, my background. Uh, if I had a relationship, you know, all these things. And then she turned and, it into, like, an existential crisis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she she kind of fed it all back to me as, so you're 31, you don't have any relationships, which is not true because I have lots of meaningful relationships, right. not romantic or a romantic relationship. Um, and she also said I had been fired from my job, which was also not true. <laughs> so, it sounds like she's taking a lot of liberties yeah, here with so, your story. Yeah, and then she kind of summed it all up by saying, you're too old for this, Rachel. <laughs> what? <laughs> and threatening to deport me from Ireland. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I don't know if she... Uh, yeah, I'm not Is sure she okay? Why. Like, <laughs> What? Uh, in the end, she let me enter the country. Okay, and, that's good. And I was able to stay for a month. Was um, she like joking with you, or was no, she, she genuinely was deadly like serious? Oh my gosh! I, w I really thought I was going to be deported at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so it just kind of shook up my perception of myself because she completely changed the narrative of my life, basically. Right. Yeah. And 
So kind of indignantly, I started thinking about, well, what is it that makes a single woman a threat? Or like, what, why, if you don't fit into these boxes of being a wife or, or a girlfriend, like, what makes you risky? <laughs> or, right. Yeah, because you're not attached to these legitima- legitimizing institutions, mm-hmm. basically. Legitimizing um, by whose standards? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I so to go back to all the single ladies, like I, I think she talks about that a little bit in terms of, you know, with men don't respond to that well because a single woman is then competition somehow. Oh, um, okay. And I don't know, maybe. Or they just, like, don't know what to do with you. <laughs> like, don't know where where to put yeah. you in their, like, yeah, categorization. Yeah, it makes you kind of mysterious. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, I think... So, actually, let me ask a question about Ireland. Mm-hmm. Is, like, as far as, like, I've never been to Ireland, aside from the airport, um, is there, like, traditional gender roles kind of embedded in the culture? Is there, like, an mm-hmm. expectation of getting married young from what you uh... experienced? Not from what I experienced. I don't, yeah, I'm not an authority on it at all. But, um, yeah, I don't think that, like, maybe she was just having a really bad day. So this was this one particular (laughs) customs agent who took a lot of issue with (laughs) your, your, and I'm putting this in quotes, your lifestyle. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure if it had cultural motivations or it was kind of shortly after um, the 2016 election here, so maybe she was kind of mad So the fact that you were an American yeah. is more of a problem, which <laughs> exactly. Oh, here's an interesting part of that story. So there's more. Yeah, <laughs> on the as I was getting off the plane, you know, there's always that time where everyone's mm-hmm. crowded into the aisle waiting to get off, and nothing's moving. Everyone just sit down and relax. Yeah. Wait until the doors open. Exactly. It'll be fine. Not getting anywhere. <laughs> Um, so yeah, in this crush of humanity on the plane, this man, a few seats behind me, was shouting and like spouting off about how earthquakes in the Midwest were God's judgment on the world. And um, so definitely some kind of religious fanatic going wild in the back of the plane. And I could see the flight attendants like calling <laughs> for security or yeah. something. You know, I'm not sure what. But everyone was aware of what was going on in the back. Um, we all got off the plane. We all got in line for customs. That man made it through. Without <laughs> like, even a, yeah. a blink of an eye. Exactly. <laughs> and there I was How being interrogated. You? <laughs> how dare you be a single yeah. woman. <laughs> so how was the trip? How was the experience? Oh, it was wonderful. Once I got nice. there, it was great. Um, but it was kind of this time where I was thinking a lot about, mm-hmm. like, what it means to be a single woman and looking at other examples of single women and also realizing that a lot of the women who are really influential for me, like historical women and writers, were single too. Mm-hmm. So. so that's a really cool way of like thinking about that. Finding, I think in any situation, if you're feeling unsure, like finding mentors is mm-hmm. such a good route to go down. So who are some that came to mind then? Um, well, 
Louisa May Alcott. I can't wait to see, I can't wait to see Little Women. I've never said that before. This is the first time I've said that, but when I saw the trailer, I'm on board. So are you a Little Little Women fan at all? I I actually have not, oh my gosh, I'm an English teacher and I have not read Little Women. Um, I've seen all the other versions of the movies Mm -hmm. and I'm going to tell the story. I might end up cutting this out, but when I was maybe like five or six, I really, really looked up to my cousin, who's about six years older than me, Okay. and I remember her saying, we all, like, sat down as a family to watch The Little Women, the one with Winona Ryder, mm-hmm. and I remember my cousin saying, this movie has no plot, and <laughs> me, as a six-year-old who idolized my cousin, kept repeating that, even though I had no idea what it meant, and so I was like, I don't like Little Women because my cousin doesn't like Little Women, so I think that that... I never got into it because of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that, I still, you know, there is a plot to it. And I know, you know, I know I'm more familiar with the story now as an adult. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I will read it. Maybe I'll make that a project, an upcoming yeah. project for me. But I'm really excited for the cast of the new one. Yeah, I think what I've heard about the movie is that it, it tries to tell the story with an eye to Louisa May Alcott's life because of course the 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 book is an idealization you know it's not an autobiography um but it is based on her family Mm -hmm. life and so this book or this film I think tries to pull in more aspects of her her life life oh interesting as an independent woman Mm -hmm. Well, Joe Joe is is her, her, basically, right? right? Cool. Yeah, but Joe ultimately gets married, and so so it is a little different. It is different, but also, so I'm in the midst of reading Jane Eyre with my students, so if any students are listening, stop listening now, because I'm going to talk about (laughs) the end, and you haven't gotten to the end yet. Spoiler alert. So, spoiler alert for Jane Eyre. Um, I, you know, I tell them at the beginning of the book, we really have to look at it through a, or we can't look at it through a 2019 lens. There is no world in that time in, I think it's 1847 or the 1850s, she can't end up by herself because she would be basically out on the street or wildly unhappy. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no... She'd be a governess forever. Right, she'd be a governess forever. <laughs> if she didn't have that money from her uncle, if she weren't an heir, that's why it's called Jane Eyre, um, she... Her life just wouldn't have been the way that it was. And, like, in that time period, that was just kind of how it was for the most part, unless we talked about, like, anomalies. Mm-hmm. Um, and tw- that does not work for our 2019 lens, because you don't have to end up married in order to have a good, fulfilling life. Right. Um, yeah. And not that... For her, it's more about security than anything else. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to do... It does ultimately have to do with fulfillment for her, but... Um, yeah, but being an independent woman would have been hard. <laughs> yeah. Now, I had always thought that Charlotte Bronte was single, but she actually married at the very the very end of her life. After, yeah, but yeah, yeah, she I she died in childbirth, I think, when she was forty. But she spent most of her life as mm-hmm. a single woman. And so did Emily. Yeah. Sister. yeah, yeah, and and Anne also. I think they were. I don't know that much about Anne actually. I, I'm. Barely certain she was single, but... I, I feel like they all yeah. kind of hung out together, they and did, that was yeah. their thing. But yeah, they... What a, what a tragic time, also. Everyone's... Anne was single, I remember. Oh, okay. That. She died pretty young. Mm-hmm. Emily and Anne. They all died. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah so. 
Everyone was dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> so who knows if they would have married had right they, had they the lived longer? They lived, yeah. But I think, like, I feel like Charlotte Bronte spent a lot of her life pining. Yeah. <laughs> but we got some great literature so out of it. So Lisa Alcott was not pining. She mm-hmm. was the opposite of pining. <laughs> nice. And she, uh, yeah, and she did not want to marry Joe off. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Little Women was published in two parts, mm-hmm. and in the first part, um, or after she published the first part, it was really well received and very popular, and uh, she was getting a lot of letters from women and girls saying, but who do the Little Women marry? <laughs> and so, and I think she said, um, yeah, she said something about how she wouldn't marry Joe to Lori for anything, mm-hmm. uh, to please anyone. Um, so she did get a lot of, as she was writing the second half, there was more pressure from her publisher mm-hmm. and from the public to provide nice, neat, happy endings yeah. for all the characters. And so Joe does get a happy ending, but hers kind of subverts the norm by mm-hmm. she doesn't marry the rich boy next door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she waits, and because she's single, she finds her like a good match. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that, if you guess, in order to sell books, you have to cave to social pressure sometimes, I guess. (laughs) So wait, aside from Louisa May Alcott. Oh yeah. Those are a lot of spoiler alerts for Little Women. Yeah. Little Women and Jane Eyre have been spoiled. Uh, But if you haven't read it by now, you should. Yeah. Yeah, I think Uh, everyone knows the stories. So who are some other examples that you found for, like, mentors? Uh, Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. She was also a single woman. She, um, and she was living around the time of the Brontes, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. of course. She's, like, the, <laughs> the beacon of mm-hmm. <laughs> womanhood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I, I lived in Rochester for a long time. Oh, so you were and, not too far from her yes. hometown. And I, I volunteered as a tour guide at her home. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So is I her home, a lot about her. Is it in Rochester or is it closer to, like, Seneca Falls? It's, a, it's right in Rochester. Oh, okay, cool. Yep. Nice. Love it. Those are lots of good examples. <laughs> So I think we'll move into the questions about womanhood now. I know we've been talking about it quite a bit, but we'll get deeper into it. Um, So is there anything about, like, your background or your story that you want to share that we didn't really get into yet? Uh, I think I was thinking about my life experiences or my job choices before becoming a a writer. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of different things, but they were all unified by this idea of connecting people with information and resources so and that it was expressed in different ways so for about five years after I graduated from college I worked in um, I worked in various like homeless shelters and uh, I worked in a drop-in center for women in Portland Oregon and then I worked in transitional housing here in Buffalo and then in Rochester in the homeless shelter for men. And so I think that those two experiences of working like exclusively with women first and then exclusively with men, or almost ex- exclusively with men, kind of shaped a lot of my ideas about gender. And Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's, that's just an element of my background. Cool, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What What's like an ideal that kind of came from those experiences? That you have. 
Mm. Um, or even just like a story. Of, yeah. <laughs> of like the differences, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, I was really so, so I had worked with women first, and it was that drop in center was just a really. What is a drop in center exactly? So for... it's not a shelter. It's it's just like a daytime place oh, okay. where people can homeless. Mostly homeless people could come and hang out, and some not everyone was homeless. Some people lived like in the neighborhood or mm-hmm. um, were in kind of low income housing and needed another place to be during the day or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just a it was a really special environment and um, and also really emotional too. So it we tried to be like a safe space where people could come and just like be or or talk to other people or um you know just kind of let their guard down because for especially for homeless women they're very vulnerable um you know out on the streets so yeah so that was kind of my experience there and then when i went to the men's shelter i kind of expected it to be similar but I was really surprised that the whole tone of the place was very different. So it was very, it was a lot less unburdening of, in terms of like emotions okay. and, um, you know, people were kind of more tough or, you know, more jokey or, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that, that would be the main difference that I noticed. Interesting. In I guess I never thought of that before. Yeah, yeah, it's different. The ways that people respond to vulnerable situations are really different, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's what the so for the women in this group, it seemed like what they needed was to connect and to, um, you know, be heard and uh, just have that kind of safe space. Whereas for the men, it seemed more, that was less a priority. It was more like, oh, just. Or it wasn't something that they felt comfortable expressing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Hmm. I don't have a follow-up for that. <laughs> I just need to think about it a little bit more. Because, yeah, that would... I mean, you know, stereotypically, I guess, like, men and women have different needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would make sense that each place would reflect those needs. Hmm. Cool. Interesting. Um, so getting into the, the womankind question, um, so Rachel, what does it mean to you to be a woman in 2019, which I'm going to have to say 2020 soon, but in 2019, um, I think I'm really excited about the pluralism of womanhood right now, that there are so many, so many different ways to be a woman, so many different expressions of womanhood. Um, so I think. And, and that that all comes after so so many years and waves of movements pushing for greater rights for women and uh, greater opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so what are you, the hardest parts of being a woman for you? Uh, let's see. <laughs> I think in general... Well, women have been underrepresented in a lot of different spheres of life and also undervalued. And so I think those are kind of the two two of the main hurdles going forward for women to overcome, mm-hmm. to just be 
recognized for their achievements and um, yeah, and to be visible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're definitely are helping with that with p- putting stories of women out into the world. <laughs> I hope so. Um, and I think that that's kind. Of, I don't know. I, everything is such a like slow moving train because um, I think there are a lot of changes that are happening, but they are not happening fast. <laughs> a lot of people are fighting for these things every single day, but again, it's just, we're just trucking along. Mm-hmm. Slowly but surely. <sighs> yes. Um, so what are your favorite parts of being a woman then? Uh, I love being a sister. <laughs> I feel like that's a really special role that's unique to women, of course. Um, I, yeah, I, I think there's kind of a general culture of self-enrichment among women that I really appreciate. Um, I love taking classes or going to lectures, and I always notice that those groups of people are predominantly women. And I think I, there are, of course, exceptions to that, and a lot of guys I know are, like, really passionate about their hobbies or have projects that they devote a lot of time to. But I think in general, there is kind of a greater um, greater movement among women to learn more or to get together to have a book club or, <laughs> uh, yeah, take a class. So I think that's something mm-hmm. I appreciate about being a woman. And, and hopefully that would expand to men too. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no reason why <laughs> it shouldn't, but... Right, and I think maybe that ties back to um, what you're talking about in terms of being at, like, the women's shelter and, like, that need mm-hmm. for, like, expression and vulnerability. I think a lot of women have that need for, that for like, connection and doing things together and, like, talking it out as you're doing it. And so, like, you know, reading a book is not enough. You have to have a book club to talk right. about the book. <laughs> um, or you have to have some kind of experience with other people doing that. And I don't know, I just really love to learn, so I appreciate those things, mm-hmm. too. But I don't know if that's because I'm a woman. Yeah, it's you know? maybe not gender-specific, <laughs> right. but, but, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there, you know, I try, we're, we try not to be stereotypical at womankind, but, like, there are just some things that, it's just, like, a fact that more women do this particular thing than men. Mm-hmm. And it might be for a variety of reasons. It might be because of marginalizing region reasons, but I don't know. I think it's okay to say that sometimes. <laughs> um, so what issue that affects women are you most passionate about? Um, I, I guess right now I'm interested in issues of single women and basically those are things that affect all women. So, um, but they're, there's more pressure on them in terms of um, the single community. So, for example, uh, equal pay or um, subsidized childcare or (laughs) all the things that make it... So, single women exist today in large numbers because of, you know, improvements in terms of economic Mm -hmm. independence and uh, political rights and reproductive rights, things like that, all those things have kind of coalesced to make it possible to live a full life as a single woman and not have to marry for economic reasons. Um, And so, but they kind of also highlight 
the fact that there's still so much room for improvement in those areas that if this is this is kind of a growing trend if it keeps growing it's more important than ever that women are able to support themselves with equal pay or right that sort of thing exactly yeah. definitely I don't know just heavy heavy issues <laughs> I'm like I'm like what can we do <laughs> um yeah absolutely I because you know, improving things for any marginalized group improves things for everybody. Mm-hmm. It just makes the world better. I don't know. When I think about, like, the wage gap, I just don't really know how that's going to change in America. Because I think, is it mostly caused because of women having babies and then having to stay home or having to breastfeed and having to kind of step back from the workforce for a little while. How are we going to change that? (laughs) How are we going to make that better? Yeah. Until men start having babies. Right. (laughs) That would change everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I don't know. Talking about it, I guess, is the first step. So here we are. Mm -hmm. Um, So this question goes hand in hand with that. Um, What changes would you like to see for women in the future? And you may have just said some of that. <laughs> yeah, I guess those are a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of the changes. I guess my uh, my hope for for women womankind is that um, we keep creating space for women to be their authentic selves, mm-hmm. like whatever that looks like. That we just kind of keep expanding that uh, definition and also. Um, yeah, make space socially and culturally for that, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but this might expand this question a little bit. Um, who are the women that you most admire? And do you have any particular story of a subversive woman? Oh. Woman. <laughs> well, um, my mom, of course, is an important I admire her, too. For me. Yes. It's a shout-out for her. Oh. <laughs> She'll love that. <laughs> She's uh, one of my best followers on too. Instagram, yeah, so is. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she might have to be a future guest. I think she would be a stellar guest. Yes, <laughs> I'll just get your whole family on here, except for your brother. Sorry. <laughs> He's a feminist. So yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, oh, I was just thinking in response to your question of how, do, like, how do we solve the wage gap? Um, Susan B. Anthony actually had an answer to that, so... Of course she did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she wrote, um, I just realized I was brandishing my pen at you. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Susan B. Anthony wrote, uh, or delivered a speech in 1877 called The Homes of Single Women. Mm-hmm. And um, Rebecca Tracer also mentions this in her Yes, I, I remember yeah. this. Um, but it was, she was talking about the trajectory of women's rights and how do we achieve equality and basically her idea was there has to come a point where women stop marrying men and that, <laughs> um, and that by doing that they'll kind they'll just push equality further they'll force men to recognize them as um, you know equal mm-hmm. counterparts in society and yeah so, but that's kind of like happening exactly with yeah so it was very naturally yeah <laughs> she was a smart one wasn't she <laughs> she was interesting so I mean and maybe that's 
you know, I, I just keep this 1990s now just like sticking in my head so much. And I feel like maybe things have changed more rapidly since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe that I think has something true. to do with it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have a lot to think about after <laughs> this episode. Um, and so did you have a, I mean, we've talked about a lot of subversive women, but yes. did you have one particular story? Um, and it's okay if you don't, because I don't have one today oh. either. <laughs> I, well, I just learned about this woman, um, Alice E. Blaché, hmm. who was a French woman and the first female filmmaker. Wow. Uh, who was kind of like at the ground floor of film. That's like so film cool. in general. Like um, film itself. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Or like moving film. Yeah. Right? yeah. Cinema. Um, and she, so I watched this documentary called Be Natural, which mm-hmm. is all about her. And she, at the same time that the Lumiere brothers in France were like revolutionizing photography and figuring out how to make film, um, she worked for, she was a secretary for a company and ended up becoming the first female director, or one of the first directors in general, and the first female director, and making tons and tons of movies. Uh, She moved to America then and continued making movies and um, traveled around a little bit more. But she was basically erased from film history. I've never heard of her. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like you should write a book about her. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. Although there is this really great movie. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so... So it's just an interesting story, similar to Mary Cassatt, that mm-hmm. uh, we kind of have this perception that women weren't participating in, like, in various achievements mm-hmm. through the years, like artistic achievements and technological mm-hmm. and scientific. But it's not that they weren't there; it's just that they're not remembered. Right, their stories aren't are not told yeah. as often. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to go back and find them all. Yes, and tell them. So, Rachel, I think we've reached the end of the episode. Is there anything that you want to add? Anything you want to elaborate on? Uh, No, I just want to thank you for having me here. It's been delightful. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. I feel like I've, I know, because I knew that you had a lot of kind of like different jobs over the years, but Mm -hmm. I never really had a timeline of them. And so now I do. So now (laughs) it's all coming together. (laughs) So, Rachel, thanks so much for being here. Womankind listeners, if you're looking to get in touch with me, um, you can find me at Womankind Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Um, You can email me at womankind at gmail.com or go to my website, www.womankindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye, friends.